Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey friends, when I record interviews, I pretty much always get off the call so excited and wanting to share the episode the next week so you can hear it right away. But that's not the way my production process works. So it's usually at least a couple of months before an episode airs. And then, you know, real life intrudes and things move around and I end up with episodes and conversations that have been sitting on my hard drive for a really long time, like six or eight months or even a year, which is the story for today's conversation with Tori. I just discovered that it has been sitting on my hard drive since January, and I was dismayed to realize I wasn't even sure what the basic topics of the conversation were. So imagine my absolute delight when I listen to the audio, and it's fucking glorious. Honestly, I could listen to Tori talk all day. We dive into topics like why confident little girls turn into quiet, ashamed middle schoolers, how her family tried to buck the stereotypes of Black fathers not being around by allowing her abuser to continue living with them. In the moment, she had to decide whether to save her abuser or literally let him die. We talk about race play and so much more. So let's get into it. Tori is a 46-year-old cisgender female. She describes herself as Black, mostly straight, currently monogamous, and in a relationship. She grew up in the Black Baptist Church and describes her body as plus size. And Tori is also a writer and artist who wanted to let you know how to find her online. So you can find her at ToriWestonWriterArtist.com and her links are in the show notes. I am so pleased to finally introduce Tori. Tori, I am so excited to have you. I know you're a relatively new listener to the podcast, so I yes. absolutely adore that you reached out and said you wanted to be a guest. <laughs> yes, I was listening to it and I'm like, oh, I have to reach out to Leah and tell her how much I love this podcast, but also like ask if I can be a guest on the podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, you can. <laughs> So what is it about this show that speaks to you? Like, I didn't get to hear any of those conversations until college or after college. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to an artsy college. So, you know, I was 
coming from a religious background. So when I would hear people talk so openly about it, I was like intrigued and appalled at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. But I also, you know, as I've gotten older, seek out places where I feel like women can openly be free to talk about not just sex or relationships, but just really fully talk about being themselves. It's weird that sometimes I feel not necessarily experiencing the world with everyone else because I do live in one of these liberal bubbles. (laughs) Um, You know, I live in an artsy community and I forget that sometimes there are places where people freely can't be themselves and stuff. So the podcast, like I kept on listening episode after episode, and was just so excited to hear women talk about themselves, but also excited to hear about everyone's journey. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're here to share your journey with us. And as you know, as a listener, the first question of every journey is, <laughs> what's your first memory of sexual pleasure? I have to say, this is more partly was told to me. And then as I thought about it, kind of remembered. Um, my grandmother said that every time John Travolta would come on the television, I would run to the television and kiss the TV. <laughs> Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> like, and, you know, it's one of those big TVs that were on the floor. And she said, like, I was two years old when Saturday Night Fever came out. And so she's like, no matter where you were in the house, as soon as you heard that man's voice, you would run to the TV wow. and kiss him. <laughs> and, and you know, when she, she told me that when I was a little older and I was just like, yeah, I've always kind of like, there was just something about seeing him that I don't know if it was sexual, but there was just something like where I was just drawn. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's like my first. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it was specifically him. You didn't do this with various male performers. It was just no, him. She said it was just him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Two year old with a discerning palate. <laughs> yes. And so, um, as we grow up, we grow out of those adorable little kid things that we do. How did that kind of excitement about people and about, I assume what you were being drawn to, because you say Saturday Night Fever, that was a very sort of sexual, it had a lot of sexual energy about it. Even if as a two-year-old, you weren't responding to sex, it had a lot of energy. So how did that progress for you as time went on? I think... Partly, you know, I grew up in, um, my grandparents were, you know, Southern transplants that moved up north. So I grew up in a very Southern Baptist community in New England. So, you know, I grew up in Rhode Island. So I also grew up in a very diverse community. And so there were a lot of things that I learned early on that you could talk about crushes or the way other kids talked about sex was very hush-hush. And then when the adults were in the room, you know, because we were church people, you would go to Sunday and uh, this is bad. This is God doesn't want Mm. you to do this and everything. So I had very mixed views about like what could be said where. And then also just kind of, I didn't realize there was a term 
when I was younger, but how black girls are sexualized very early on. Mm -hmm. And so there was always this, if you talk back, you were sassy. And if you didn't talk back and you did what you said, you were a good girl. And if you, you know, acted out, then you're going to end up on the street or something. So there was always this fine line that I was learning that when I was around other kids, you would talk about, oh, this person kissed or, you know, oh, this person did this. But then you also knew that when the adults were around, you can't really say those things. So it was just kind of like conditioned very early on, like what was okay and what was not okay. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you, you've mentioned your grandparents a couple of times. It sounds like they were a major influence in your life. Yes, my grandparents. Um, so my mom, for part of my life was a single parent. And then my mother got married. Um, and then we lived next door to my grandparents. Oh, so you had a couple of generations right there with you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Was there a difference between how your mom talked about or related with sex and how your grandparents talked about and related with sex? Yes. Um, My mother was very, I wouldn't say conservative, but my mom and I are exactly 20 years apart. Okay. Um, My biological father was my mom's first love. My mom was 17 and my dad was 27 when they first met. And back in 1974, that wasn't a big deal. (laughs) 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 Back in the 70s, like men dating in their 20s, dating high school students wasn't a big deal. And I was a product of their um, relationship. And then, you know, my mom also had a relationship with another man, a white man who is the father of my sister. And then my mother got married and then had two other kids. So during that time, like my view of my mother was more, my mom was very, not necessarily closed off, but to herself. Hmm. I don't really have any memories of her being very expressive, except, you know, when she was married and I kind of got more of the fact that my, one of my sisters and I, the one who, dad is white. (laughs) We call ourselves before my mom found Jesus. And then my mom and my younger brother and sister are after my mom (laughs) found Jesus. (laughs) So we we are her before kids. Got it. Um, But my grandparents, they'd been together for a long time. And, you know, my grandparents were part of the church and everything like that. And so was my mom. But when my grandmother was with her friends, we got to see a side of her that was a little naughtier. Like, you know, the way she, they, her and her friends, we would spy on them because, you know, grown folks, they had grown folks talk and kids couldn't be in grown folks talk. And I remember yeah. my grandmother telling me, when you turn 18, you can be part of grown folks talk, but until then you can't be part of grown folks talk. Uh-huh. But we would listen to them you know, the way my grandmother expressed herself and the way she was, was different when she was surrounded by her friends or her sisters than, you know, when she was grandma. So we knew that she had this other side to her. Um, You know, she never really kept it away from us, but we knew, like, at least I got the sense that there was this funness to her, that there wasn't all about this being a God-fearing woman, being religious, where my mother was go to church. You know, my mom was the church secretary. She, you know, 
super involved in everything and God wants you to be this way and stuff. Yeah. Where my grandmother was a little bit more, she's like, well, as long as you pray and you believe, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know? She yeah. was a little bit more relaxed. And um, so how old were you when your mom found Jesus? Um, I don't know. I, I feel like it like happened when I was five or six because my mom got married when I was five. Okay. So um, you were still quite young. Yeah. I was still quite young. Growing up in the Black Baptist Church, there is this role that women play. And I think my mom really, and still does revel in this, like being a good Christian woman. Good Christian woman goes to church and Bible study and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And she was trying to raise us to be part of that. Yeah. I don't recall that I've interviewed anybody who specifically has experience with the Black Baptist Church. So I'd like to ask you some more questions about that with the understanding that I know very little about it. And (laughs) so if I ask any inappropriate questions or say anything inappropriate, would you please tell me? Sure. Okay, great. Um, So what was the basic conversation? Like we hear people who came out of the more white evangelical movement talk about purity culture and true love weights and all of that. Was that present in the Black Baptist Church? It was present, but I feel like, you know, this is like during like the late 70s and 80s. It was more of any time like we would talk about boys. Well, you have to marry a young black Christian man mm-hmm. and you have to save yourself for marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to figure out where you, where you fit in the church. You know, are you going to do usher board? Are you going to be in choir? Are you going to do all this stuff? So it was more of be a good person, be a good girl, go to church, find a black Christian man and don't be, and they would always give examples like this person, you know, <laughs> don't be out like sleeping with a ton of men or doing drugs or, you know, yeah. going to bars and all that kind of stuff. Christian women don't do those things. Um, so it was definitely those who went to church and those who didn't. Mm-hmm. From my understanding, it was always like good girls go to church and you participate and you do what a good girl, you know, did. Like my grandmother, she, my grandmother was a housewife, you know, she watched the neighborhood kids, you know, my grandfather was a carpenter and everything like that. And he would come home and put his boots outside and my grandmother would have the bath ready, the food ready, <laughs> being around her so much. She saw in me that I had no intention of ever following those things. That was my next um, question. How did all of this <laughs> land for you? <laughs> Yeah. I was the kid that I read a lot. You know, I was very curious, especially like before I hit my teens. I used to get kicked out of Sunday school class a lot because I had a lot of questions. And I remember my grandmother sitting me down and telling me, she's like, Tori, being of faith will come and you will figure out whether this is the space that you well, if this is the kind of worship you want to do, but you don't have to fit into this Hmm. where my mother was so hardcore about making me fit in. Hmm. Like you have to wear a dress. I used to rebel about wearing a skirt or a dress to church. And I I have to be a part of this organization. I have to do these things. And when I was younger, I didn't mind because I felt like it was more like school. 
you know, if you get to memorize the most Bible verses, you get a prize. If you, do, you know, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to memorize all the Bible verses. I'm going to memorize all the 66 books of the Bible. Yeah. I'm going to, but I never felt like the way that you're supposed to feel like in Black Baptist Church, like hymns and choir and all that kind of stuff is a big thing and testifying to the Lord is a big thing. And then people would get the Holy Spirit and I would sit there and I would just be, I was respectful when someone gets the Holy Spirit and they jump up and start shouting and stuff. But I never felt that. And I remember telling my grandmother, I'm like, I don't feel the same way everyone else feels about all of this. Mm -hmm. You know, and I wonder what other people think, or I read this book where people live here and they don't really have church there and they have Buddhism or something. And are they going to go to hell? And, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I had these huge questions. And so she was always the person that if I didn't want to participate in something, I go to my grandmother and my grandmother would talk to my mom, but my mom just so wanted us to be part of the church, which made it kind of difficult as I got older, because that was like a point of rebellion. Yeah. So you mentioned that the expectation was that you would grow up and marry a black Christian boy. Did that hold interest for you? Was that oh, what no. you expected? <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew from probably like fifth grade on that it was like, and it wasn't until I got older that I met other black girls who felt this way, but it's like, no, I you know, I like white guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, there were those teen crushes, you know, you have like new edition and Bobby Brown and all yeah, that kind sure. of stuff. Um, and yeah, I thought they were cute, but I didn't like look at them to be my boyfriend, but Donnie Wahlberg. Yeah. yeah. I want Donnie Wahlberg <laughs> to be my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what the difference was for you? What was the attraction to the white boys? I think it had a lot to do with my sister's dad. Okay. You know, I remember reading something in, I think it was like psychology today or something that talked about, they did studies about people's first crushes and attractions and what like led to that. And, you know, my sister's dad was, you know, was this white guy he was really nice and there was just something about him that, like, it was like my first real father figure. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom is, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, I told her she was so surprised I remembered so much about them because they broke up at around when my sister turned two or something and, you know, went their separate ways. But, you know, I always remember the way he was. And I feel like that became the template yeah. for that's who I want to date. Yeah. <laughs> like that's fascinating. Like that. Yeah. You know, I kind of knew that you're supposed to like somebody black. And so like when someone's like, Ooh, who do you have a crush on? And I would just choose whatever black boy was in my class. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but really I like, you know, would have crushes on a ton of boys. Yeah. And plus like my mom, when she talked about that relationship, you know, it was the seventies and, she said it was hard because this person loved her very much and, you know, loved me very much, you know, was wanted us to be a family. But the time period of being a black woman, being with a white man, mm. having a biracial child, my mom couldn't handle the pressure of, yeah. of that. Mm -hmm. 
It's so interesting to hear you talk about like this idea of imprinting on him as the, uh, I don't know, the avatar of the person who you then became interested in later, because it reminds me of hearing people talk about kink and how people who have really defined kinks and fetishes in adult life can often trace them back to very, very young ages. Like this is not stuff that just sort of appeared out of nowhere. They can go back to three, four, five years old and say, Oh, I was already doing the same thing. I just didn't have words or a context for it then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're in high school now talking to the other girls and, uh, saying whichever black boy is closest about who you yeah, have a crush well, on? Elementary, elementary school. By the time oh, okay. like junior high came, like I also had like, my stepfather was, it's very complicated because he was just a very, and still is a very, uh, he has lots of issues. You know, my mom and him are, are no longer together, but also it was one of those things where, you know, when my, him and my mom got married, there was always the gut feeling that I never felt comfortable with him. Mm. And I just, would look at him and just kind of knew that that this person is going to harm me in some way. And I think part of it was my mom came with two little girls, you know, but also I remember one of the first arguments I had with my stepdad, I was like eight or nine years old and he was trying to figure out my, this is going to sound so dated. My mom <laughs> bought a universal remote uh-huh. <laughs> and he was so quick to anger. And so he was like saying it didn't work. And then I sat down, read the directions, typed mm-hmm. in the thing and it turned on. And I'm like, it works. Mm-hmm. And there were moments like that where I think I was smarter than him. I'm better than him. And I would, you know, you, you think your mom loves you more than me. And, you know, I didn't really get that. But then I, out of my group of friends, you know, my childhood friends, I was the first one to get boobs. I was the first person to start looking more like a woman mm-hmm. and at 10, 11 years old. So I began to see the way he looked at me and I kind of just didn't know how to put into words that I don't think that this is right. Yeah. But I was also highly unaware of what I looked like. I had the mentality of a kid, mm-hmm. but the way men looked at me, started to look different when I would walk to the park with my friends and stuff. I remember an incident where one of the things I love to do, like we pretty much spent most of the time, summertime at the park. The city had a free lunch program. And so every kid in my neighborhood go to the park and you would play all day, get a free lunch, and then you would play until you got called home. And one of my favorite things to do was to climb them on the monkey bars, flip over and have my shirt fall over my face. (laughs) And so, and I could swing back and forth. And when you got enough momentum, you could flip yourself over. Mm -hmm. And I remember the summer that I started to get boobs. I did that. And I remember my uncle, my mom's youngest brother was five years older than me. And my uncle's like, you can't do that anymore. And when I got home, 
But he, did he explain to you why? No one explained yeah. to me why. Mm-hmm. And then when I got home, my grandma sat me down and she's like, you know, you can't do those things anymore because you're becoming a woman and you have to wear a bra. And I would get in trouble for not wearing one mm-hmm. to the point where my mom was going to punish me because I, she's like, you can't leave this house without a bra. Oh, wow. Now, I didn't know, I didn't see myself mm-hmm. as this. And I know it was more of my uncle was protecting me and everything. Yeah. But at the same time, it was one of those things where, you know, as I got to be 12 years old and, you know, my hips are starting to curve and mm-hmm. all of this stuff, it just didn't dawn on me until my stepdad started to make advances and everything and things escalated to full-blown abuse. And it was one of those things where the whole entire time I was looking at myself and just being like, but I'm still like a kid. Yeah. And I still want to do kid things, but now everybody's telling me I can't do these kid things anymore. Mm -hmm. That was the hardest part to take for me sometimes. And going to being this confident kid, know-it-all kid, you know, Mm -hmm. and then slowly becoming very quiet because, like, I was afraid to play outside because Mm. I was like, what if I can't, you know, I was a very tomboyish girl, so it's like... I want to ride the BMX bike and jump the curb. I want to like climb up the tree to prove to boys that girls can climb the trees. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I couldn't do those things anymore. I felt super self-conscious about my body. And then, you know, slowly my, you know, my stepfather being very predator-like slowly started making advances and stuff into a point where it was very, um, you know, I always, Someone asked me if I could go back in time and change my stepfather being abusive and, you know, eventually molesting me and everything, would I change it? And I said, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. because it was the first time in my life I ever stood up for myself. Oh, wow. Because I got the courage to tell my mom what was going on. And, you know, I had the foresight to know that the minute I say something, everything that it is our life is going to be torn apart. Wow. So you knew she would believe you? I don't know. Or you trusted she would believe you? I trusted she would believe me, but I knew that, I think, you know, because I live next door to my grandmother, I think my grandma, I knew my grandmother would believe me. And I think she started to suspect that there was something happening because, you know, she was seeing the transition of me not wanting to participate in things and me not wanting to be around me constantly, like doing whatever I can to not come home from school or to stay at her house longer. So I think that she kind of began to suspect that there was something going on. And then when I finally told my mother, this is what's happening. I remember my mother, we were walking to the store And I blurted it out in front of the cashier Mm. and walking home. And I remember when my mom walked to the door, she had the four of us go next door to my grandmother's house. And then she confronted my stepfather. Mm. And then my stepfather left. And then eventually he had checked himself into the mental hospital. Mm -hmm. You know, my stepfather had mental health issues. So he was like, you know, 
with in and out so it was one of those things where i knew that what our life was like and what it was going to become was very different yeah and i shouldered that burden at 13 years old and was like all right well the thought of having to endure this and the thought of having to well this seems like the better option you know mm-hmm. it's like yeah um, and my grandparents, you know, very much took control of the situation in a way I feel like they only knew how. This may sound weird now, but in the mid-80s, there was this whole thing about protecting the Black family. There are no Black families with mothers and fathers living together and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. I feel like also growing up in a church community where you're saving face, like, Yeah. This happened. And the first thing my grandparents decide, okay, here's how we're going to do this. My uncle started living with us and they did their own way of sort of making sure that things didn't happen again. Mm -hmm. But also you didn't go to a therapist. You went to the pastor Uh and you prayed and you asked for forgiveness. And when my stepfather checked out of the mental hospital and he came back, we all went to church together and this is how we're going to do this. And we're going to keep God in our family. And it was such an intense, like my stepfather lived with us for two years after that knowing. Oh, wow. And I remember when he was in the mental hospital, he had attempted to kill himself and the conversation stopped being about what happened to Tori and started being like, okay, we have to make sure that when he comes home, mm-hmm. he doesn't do anything to harm himself. And I remember my stepfather had a scar across his neck. Oh, wow. And before I came home, he wanted to talk to all of us on the phone. And in front of my mother, I still like, I look back at myself and I'm like, wow, this was a really bold girl. Mm-hmm. In front of my mother, I, looking at her, I didn't want to talk to him. And I said, if you ever touch me again, or if you do anything to my siblings, I will kill you. Wow. And I handed the phone to my mother and, you know, and that was an intense moment. Now I'll back up and say that at the time I played field hockey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I had two field hockey sticks and field hockey sticks are made out of mulberry wood, which is very strong wood. Uh So when my stepfather moved home, even though my uncle slept downstairs, I forced myself to stay up awake and I would sleep Mm. in the bed with my field hockey stick. So any time I would see him coming down the hall, I made sure that he saw me Mm -hmm. with that stick in my hand, um, knowing that you are not going to fuck with me. Yeah. And so, you know, my mom was trying so hard to keep her family together. And looking back, I realized that, me being 13 at the time means that my mother was 33. (laughs) So, and I think that she was just trying so hard to keep her husband, keep her daughter, not knowing that she like was losing her daughter. Because when I saw there was a moment in, um, when my stepfather lived with us, that kind of was like a defining moment. And my mom was trying so hard for us to eat as a family and, and this. And I remember she cooked veal Parmesan. And making us all sit together. And then I was, when my mom told me that my stepdad was moving back in the house with us, I stopped talking to her. Mm. I would say hello. I would say goodbye. Mm -hmm. And that was it. You know, there was a whole plan that we weren't 
going to be alone in the house with him. So we'd stay at my grandmother's house. So my mom came home, my uncle was in the house. And then that's when we all could come back into the house together. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember we're all eating and my mom's going around and asking my younger brother and sister who did not know for a while what had happened, mm -hmm. asking about their school day and stuff. And then I said the prayer because she forced me to say the grace and everyone's eating. And my, my stepfather would eat, he would shovel the food in his mouth and he had like a rhythm of how he would eat. Mm -hmm. And then I noticed that the scraping of the plate stopped and everyone else is paying attention to one of my siblings talking. And then I noticed that he was choking. Oh, His eyes went wide and I could see like him starting. My stepfather was very light skinned. Mm -hmm. So I could see him starting to turn blue. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, if I sit in this chair and yes. let him choke to death, mm -hmm. all of this will be over. I won't be super stressed about being home. Yeah. He will be gone. But then I thought about the fact that we were all going to church together. And my stepfather testified in church about the devil taking his family away and all this kind of stuff. So I'm like, oh, but if I stay and let this happen, then this can turn into oh, he died in front of his family and mm -hmm. he was like, he was repenting to God and whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I got up and I performed the high milk maneuver. Wow. And I remember he like threw up in his plate mm -hmm. and caught my mom's attention and everyone else at the table. And I remember one of my siblings like, oh my God, they're so gross. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember just this feeling of confidence came over me because after he stopped choking, I sat back down and I started eating. And I remember looking at him and just like the look of, I had the power to not save you. And I did. Yeah. The power had completely shifted. And the power dynamic shifted. Yeah. So. Man, you were a badass. <laughs> <laughs> but also in that moment, like. I saw the way I saw my mom run to her husband. I knew that I was navigating adolescence by myself. So she was more concerned about him than she was about you, or at least she was demonstrating more. She demonstrated, about him. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's when I knew all of the other stuff about growing up and boys and sex and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to have to figure this out myself. Yeah. And that was the moment where I was just sort of like, okay. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you're what? Somewhere between 13 and 15 here? Yeah. So I was like, I was like about 14 when that happened. Okay. And I was like, you know, probably like eighth grade. And so I knew that what that taught me was the kind of relationship I don't want to be in. Sure. You know, the situation that I didn't want to be so afraid of what people thought, but also just with somebody that you know, would do this to someone else and to someone that like you're supposed to love and take care of. Mm -hmm. And so like, I just looked at that, my mom's marriage as, okay, this is what not to do. Yeah. Gosh, I'm, I'm just astounded at how strong you were as a, I mean, a child, at 14, you are still a child and you're a child who's been through a lot of trauma at that point. And 
I am so proud of that little girl for the way that she stood up for herself. And I think a lot of it had to do with my grandmother, because I remember when I told my mom what had happened, Mm -hmm. there was no, like, we believe you or anything like that. I remember sitting with my grandmother and I was so upset and everything. And I remember she just looked at me and she's like, I never liked him. (laughs) (laughs) And and there was no like acknowledgement of you're going to be okay and all that kind of stuff. She just looked at me and she's like, I never liked him. (laughs) And that's when I knew like my girl, I'm okay. My grandmother has my back. (laughs) (laughs) Like she didn't need to like, there was no hugging. There was no like moment of we're going to get through this. It was the way she said it and the way she looked at me. I'm just like, okay. Yeah. I know. I know this is, this is how it goes. Mm -hmm. Wow. I want to go back and pick up something that you talked about earlier. And this is where one of those places where I feel the need to tread a little bit lightly. So I'm going to just ask you the question, then let you take it wherever you go. Um, You mentioned earlier about how black girls are sexualized young. And I, I know this is true to the extent that I've heard a lot about it. But I don't know what the experience is of that. So can you talk about it a little bit? Sure. Like, I remember... One of the first times, and I actually wrote an essay about this, was the first time I was ever just not necessarily hit on, but one of my friends lived down the street from me. And, you know, I I have like shorts and a t-shirt. Can I go see if, when you know, Wendy can come out and play? Walking down the street and this car pulls up on the side of me. And I could see, like, why is this car driving so slow? Is this mm-hmm. person not knowing where they're going? <laughs> and then I get to Wendy's building, and I yell up, and I see Wendy's mom in the window. And she's looking at the car, and then the guy turns to me, and he's like, how much? <gasps> and I'm like, what? Oh, God. And then Wendy's mom yells from the window, She's not a hoe. Go get that somewhere else. I'm going to call the police. Now, Wendy's white. Uh-huh. Your mom's white. But our, you know, my neighborhood was mixed with black, yeah. Latino, Laotian, Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And it was a white guy that had pulled up. And she's like, she's not that. She's not that. I'm going to call the police. And, and then she turns to me. She's like, Wendy's on punishment. And I'm like, okay. And I remember walking back to my house. And it took a whole day for me to really understood what happened. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about why would that guy say that to me? Mm -hmm. I'm just a kid. And how old were you? I was like 12. Wow. Yeah. And so that's when I began to see the way men looked at me. Mm -hmm. And then I also began to see it with other black girls that I grew up with. Like, I remember there was this one girl, we're still in elementary school. I was in fifth grade. She was in sixth grade. She was beautiful. You know, she dressed a little older and there were grown ass men hitting on her. Mm. And I remember being in the schoolyard, we're at recess and there is this guy talking to her through the fence Mm. and none of the teachers did anything about it. Oh, wow. That's when I really begin to see like, okay, so if a man did that to my friend and she's white the teacher would say something. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But those of us who are Vietnamese, Laotian, Puerto Rican, or Black, they don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And I began to wonder, like, why is that? Why are they concerned? And this girl ended up leaving sixth grade because she got pregnant. Oh, my God. And, you know, in seventh grade, there were a bunch of girls, 12, 13 years old, pregnant. And these men are like 19, mid-20s, and no one was saying anything. And it, I remember hearing an off comment from a teacher. Well, you know, you know how those people are. Right. And so that was one of the things that I was just like, our white classmates were looked at as kids. Yeah. But we weren't looked at as kids. And that really, like, wasn't until I got older and I realized this was not just my elementary school, but how some adults view black and brown kids as not really being kids. Mm -hmm. It was like such a harsh reality of how you were seen. If you got pregnant or whatever, oh, that's what happens. It isn't like no one asks how did that happen or yeah. who is this person or were you taken advantage of? Mm-hmm. It was almost like people just expected you mm-hmm. to be like that. Yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you. And thank you for talking about it. I want to invite you to imagine for a moment what your ideal sex life looks like and feels like. Who are you with? What type of sex do you have together? How do you feel while touching them? And how does your body feel when they touch you? Or maybe you'd like to be having less sex than you're currently having. If you don't know, Or if that vision of your ideal doesn't look at all like what's currently going on in your bedroom, I can help. With personalized sex and intimacy coaching, we'll explore where you are, how you got here, where you want to be, and the steps to help you get there. There are no right or wrong answers, just the answers that work for you. I understand that exploring your sexuality and all that goes with it, your body image, your belief in your lovability, and more can be terrifying. Believe me, I sat in the middle of that fire for decades. I know how painful it is. But I also stepped out the other side, stronger, more confident, and more certain of my lovability and desirability, and I want the same for you. I work with couples and one-on-one, whether you've never explored your sexual desires before, or you want to explore things you've never done before, like maybe BDSM or non-monogamy, or if you and your partner need some help figuring out how to communicate together so you can have better sex. I'm queer, kinky, and poly-friendly, and I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life. Together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your free discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. A new client recently said that before her discovery call, she was extremely nervous. 
but that I made the experience feel easy and comfortable. So book your free discovery call today at leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Did you discover masturbation in here at some point? When I was nine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when I was nine, um, I remember there was this older girl that we would hang out with. Mm-hmm. And I remember the Purple Rain movie had come on as it came out. <laughs> that and was a sexual I, awakening for a whole generation of people. <laughs> and I remember my mom would not let us go to the movie theater and I remember this older girl had the Purple Rain tape and she was singing the lyrics to Darling Nikki. And I remember it was like reading the lyrics and I was just like, what's masturbating? And she's like, oh, girl, that's when you touch yourself and it feels good. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, and she's like, you know, like sometimes when you touch yourself, like down there. And it feels warm and, and you feel good. And I'm like, oh, she's like, yeah, that's what he's talking about in the song. <laughs> I, like, I feel like Prince was like a, a like an unofficial sex education. For real. And then she's like, oh, before this album, he has a song called Pink Cashmere. And I'm like, what? the? F-? And then I remember, I remember listening to the song Little Red Corvette. And I was just, it did it. You know, I loved the song and I would sing the lyrics out loud. My mom hated the fact that we loved Prince. <laughs> like we, you know, we went from loving Michael Jackson to like really embracing Prince. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was like 15 years old that I realized what Little Red Corvette was about. And it wasn't about a car. <laughs> and I feel like at nine years old and, you know, that older girl explaining to me what that meant. And I was like... Oh, so that's what that is. <laughs> so had you already been doing it and now you had a word for it? I had a word for it because, uh-huh. you know, it was just like sometimes I would like, you know, in the middle of the night, just lay on my hand or you like I had like a stuffed animal and I just remember it like it felt good if I did, you know, leaned yeah. up against it or rubbed against it. And then I was just like, oh, you know, and I would fall asleep. I didn't understand that mm-hmm. other people did that too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. At what point did you engage with another person romantically or sexually? Um, probably, I would say I had like my first boyfriend when I was 15. Mm-hmm. I was like hanging out with the artsy weird kids. <laughs> you know, they were my people. One of my um, former coworkers, he's gay. Um, and I would explain like some of the things I was into in junior high school and high school. And he's like, how come you're not a lesbian? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean by that? He's like, you played field hockey, you played <laughs> softball. You were really into those things. I'm like, those don't make girls right. become lesbians. <laughs> but there was this boy in my class. I remember like the Doors movie had came out that year And I was hanging out with the kids who like wrote poetry. And there was this one kid who was always like super nice to me. And, you know, I was the girl, the first girl to have boobs. And I like, by ninth grade, I was wearing a 
B cup. Oh, so, <laughs> so I had like huge boobs. Yeah. And so I kind of dismissed any boy who tried to talk to me who I didn't already know because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, you're talking to my boobs. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, but this one kid was like just really nice and we were in science class together and stuff. And he like would write like poem and he knew how to play guitar and everything. And still to date, one of the most romantic things, he found out that I really liked U2 and he was learned some of the songs on the Joshua Tree album and he played them to me over the phone. Oh, it was so adorable. (laughs) That's so sweet. So like my first kiss and my first makeout session happened at the library. So my parent, my mom was really strict. Like we couldn't, we weren't allowed to sleep over other people's houses who didn't go to church with us. Basically, she's like, your job is to go to school. So it was church, home, school. Those were the places we could go to. But the place that we could go to by ourselves was the library. Oh, okay. So anytime my friends wanted to hang out, I said, look, you know, guys know my mom only let me go to the library or field hockey practice. So he met me at the library and we were working on our science project or whatever. <laughs> and um, he was like, hey, why don't you – I remember there was a reference – section and I was looking at one of the reference books and he came to help me and then he like was talking to me and he kissed me and I was just like oh okay (laughs) (laughs) did you know that you liked him at that point I yeah I did like him a lot and so it was like my first kiss Uh and of course being a very geeky dorky kid of course it happened in the library of course it did And did you enjoy it? Was it fun? Yes. And he was also like, you know, because I was still like, I hadn't gone to therapy or anything about the sexual abuse, but there was just something that made me feel safe with him. Like Mm. he was so sweet and so nice and respectful um, that I felt that there was no danger in being with this kid. Besides maybe occasionally making out, most of the time we talked about books and books that we liked and songs that we liked and you know we'd listen to the radio and everything so it was sweet and innocent but it was also like that small glimmer of hope for me because you know I was going around thinking no guy would ever want me because of what's happened to me Mm -hmm. and I don't know if I could ever trust anybody and everything And, and this kid comes along and he was like Blonde haired, blue eye, Irish Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) Your mother would not have approved. (laughs) No, and I remember one of my sisters, uh, we are a year apart, Uh and she knew who he was, and she's like, that dorky guy from my chorus class. (laughs) And come to find out when he found out, wait, he's like, that girl's your sister? Because my sister had a great voice, you know, and everything like uh-huh. that. He's like, I hate her. And I'm like, all the more reason to go out with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. So it was like very like sweet and innocent. But at the same time, like it was like my first kind of, oh, okay, so there, I think there might be guys who were good and, and boys who didn't just look at my boobs. Yeah. Um, how far did things go with him? Um, we just like made out mm-hmm. not too far, not much handsy stuff. No. Okay. And then high school happened. So <laughs> once high school happened, we stopped hanging out. Yeah. 
And what happened next? Who was the next person that you engaged with? Um, I had a lot of crushes. When I, when I'm about to say this out loud, I realized how not cool this was, but <laughs> there were, um, so, you know, I kind of like, because I grew up religiously and stuff, I remember casually mentioning to someone, cause you know, all of the girls that I knew from field hockey and band and everything like that, they're starting to get boyfriends. And I'm like, you know, I'm supposed to save myself for marriage. And I guess that empowered these group of senior boys to be like, oh, this girl Tori is going to save herself for marriage. Let's try to see if she will do that. Yeah. I had no idea that went on. Fucking assholes. (laughs) (laughs) But it was one of those things where, not that they were nice to me with intention, but like, you know, I went to prom with one of them. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I was just like, no, I'm not going to sleep with you. And they're like, okay. Um, And I had like a crush on this one guy and he was so nice, but I could not at that point in time, because I had the history of sexual abuse, I saw a lot of girls that I grew up with become mom, teen moms. Mm -hmm. And I also just knew that there was a world bigger than in Rhode Island. So I had like kind of told myself at 16, I'm like, I don't want to have any boyfriends. I'll have crushes and stuff like that. Maybe make out with somebody, but I want to leave here and not have anything to hold me back. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really think of myself as like cute or hot or anything. I knew I was smart, Mm -hmm. but my high school best friend, she's like, there were so many guys who wanted to go out with you. (laughs) I was was so unaware because I had like, I was tunnel vision. I'm like, let me get good grades. Let me go to a college. I want to leave Rhode Island. I want to go to a place, a school that I could feel myself in. But yeah, I was like, this one kid would like always pick me up and would go out places. And then a lot of people assume that we were dating and I'm just like, no, he's just my best friend. Yeah. And then years later I find out, Oh wow. You had a crush on me this whole time. And And there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, I felt comfortable being friends with guys. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel, see myself as anybody's girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. But also during that time I met the person that would, help me get the help that I needed. Mm -hmm. So my high school had this program where they would have uh, students take a survey and you would ask like, because it was the 90s and it's like, who would be the person that you would tell a secret to or ask for help? And somehow my name came up and I became part of this peer advisor group. Yeah. And it was head by the school counselor. And so we went on this retreat you know, we were learning how to be good listeners and, you know, how if a friend was disclosed that they wanted to harm themselves or we, who, what adult in school we would talk to. And then we had like at the end of this training program, we had a circle where you would go and you would tell something that you never told anybody before. Mm-hmm. And some of it was like, I hate my sister's cat. And so I put it outside and that's how yeah. I got lost, you know. Mm-hmm. And then it came to me and I was thinking of something. And so I'm like, oh, I can talk about how I secretly read my mom's romance novels, but tell her that she should read better literature. <laughs> but that didn't, <laughs> but that didn't come out of my mouth. What yeah. came out of my mouth was I was 
sexually abused by my stepfather. And even when I said it, I was like, and then the next person said they're secure. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember going back to my room and just kind of sitting there. And I'd be like, I can't believe I said this out loud. Mm-hmm. And then the counselor came in and we talked. And I told him my mom doesn't want me to see a counselor. She only wants me to talk to a pastor. And he's like, well, you know, Tori, you're 16 years old. So your mom doesn't have to know that you see me. Mm. So I would go and see him. And he was the person that like told me, you're a survivor. This is what this means. Even when I found out where I was going to college, he helped me like, okay, you can go to the counseling center. Here's some resources for you. And that's when I began to see, oh, okay. So it's not a sin to talk to somebody about this and that I can actually learn how to deal with anxiety. I like started crazy insomnia, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was falling into, I know some people fall into self-harm or abuse or whatever. And I was falling into that perfectionism thing Mm -hmm. where it's like, I have to get good grades. I have to be the most perfect person ever. I can't, you know, deter from the path. And he's like, you know, I kind of thought that there was probably something. And I was just like, you could tell. And he's like, well, you know, Tori, you care a lot about other people, but you don't really think about yourself. Mm. And then you are driving yourself crazy trying to be so perfect. Mm -hmm. It was the first time someone ever, instead of being like, oh, that's so great that you got this or you're, you know, now on student council and you're now, he saw you're overloading yourself Mm -hmm. so you don't have to deal with anything. Yeah. And I was just so years later, thankful because once I got to college and I entered, I went to an artsy college and that's when I started hearing women talk about sex in a way that was like, I remember one of my college best friends, she's like, yeah, I do virginized four boys. It was no big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, what? (laughs) Or like someone being like, yeah, well, I like both guys and girls. You know, and someone's like, well, you know, it depends on who they are. And so at college, I was like, oh, wow. So you can say these things out loud. And they're like, yes, you can say these things out loud. (laughs) You can empower yourself. But the other thing that like happened in high school that was really awesome was the riot girl movement. I always tell people riot girl saved my life Hmm. because when I was introduced to bikini kill I'm like, oh my God, they're talking about girls to the front and they're talking about this and they're talking about how, when I say that before, when I said that I am like somewhat straight, I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, you can be fascinated by a girl and want to wear her clothes and want to hang out with her all the time. And yeah. that's okay, yeah. <laughs> but you don't want to be her girlfriend. <laughs> and so that kind of helped, you know, me being like, okay, it's not cool for boys to do this. It's mm. not cool for this. It's okay if I speak out. It's okay if I stand up for myself. And then when I got to college, I met a group of girls that talked about sex and talked about what it feels like to feel good and what their first times were like. And I remember everyone was talking about their first time and I wasn't seeing anything because I didn't know what to say. And I remember one girl was like, oh, she's like, my first time can be described in four words. 
And we're all like, what? She's like, oh, hammer, hammer, rip, bleed, because that's what it felt like. <gasps> oh, shit. She's like, oh, it hurt like hell. And everyone's talking about their first time. And then one of my friends noticed that I wasn't seeing anything. Mm-hmm. And somebody put me on the spot. And I'm like, oh, it's like what you guys were saying. <laughs> and then she pulled me aside and she's like, I noticed that you didn't see anything. And that's when I told her, you know, I told her this mm-hmm. was what my first time was. And this is you know, what has happened. And so she then, during that time, she had been talking about a vibrator and stuff. And I had asked her, I'm like, you kids been talking about this vibrator. What is that like? And she's like, do you want to see it? And I'm like, yeah, I want to see it. And so this kind of started my, what I call my DIY sex education, because I, before that, I didn't really, besides going to like rape crisis groups and everything and listening to other people's stories, I still wasn't, I hadn't had consensual sex. Yeah. But during that time, through these group of girls, I was learning about, oh, there's this book called Our Bodies Ourselves and there's this. And they were teaching me or sometimes unknowingly teaching me. I'm like, oh, okay. So these are the things that you do mm-hmm. when you like somebody or, you know, this is how you ask for consent. Yeah. And so there is this sex shop. And I remember my friend took me there and she's like, okay, so she talked about, so do you like penetration or clitoral stimulation? And I'm like, what? <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> do you have an orgasm when you touch yourself or when you insert something in you? I'm like, Oh, she's like, yeah, because that depends on the kind of vibrator you buy. And then the person comes to help us. And she's like, oh, you guys need help? I'm like, no. And my friend's like, she's about to buy her first vibrator. (laughs) And then the woman goes through the spiel and everything. And I went and bought one. And I just remember walking out of there and being like, everybody knows. Yeah. Everybody knows I'm holding a vibrator (laughs) and stuff. At this point, like in time when this happened, like I was living in my first apartment, you know, I was living with people from college and I let it sit on my dresser and I was just sort of like, I'm not going to touch it. And then, you know, she would be like, did you, did you use your vibrator yet? And I'm like, had this like, Everyone's in the, if I turn that on, everyone in the house is going to know that I'm using my vibrator yeah. and stuff. So I waited until everyone left the house and I used it and I was like, oh, wow, this is really nice. Mm-hmm. And then I started to use it more. And then that's when I realized I could have multiple orgasms. Mm. Then I started like really talking about my sexual experiences with some of my friends And at the time, you know, a couple of my friends moved out of the apartment. And then what I call my gay husbands moved in. (laughs) And one of my gay husbands basically took it upon himself. He's like, not only are we going to, we're going to make sure you hook up with a guy, but we're going to make sure that you know what to do. And he'd come out of the closet when he was really young and started a gay group at his high school. Mm -hmm. You know, it was controversial when he did it. And I remember we came back from the grocery store and he had bananas. He's like, the first thing I'm going to teach you is that you better realize that when you put a condom on somebody, you got to make sure that you put it on in a way that doesn't come off. (laughs) And I'm like, how do I do that? And he's like, I'm going to teach you with this banana. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And and he taught me how to put a condom on with my mouth. And he's like, when you do it that way, they're never going to take it off. (laughs) And, And so we start talking about 
sex in a way that was just so explicit. But at the same time, like, he was teaching me about, well, this is how you talk to a boy. Mm. This is how you do this. This is how you give a blowjob. This is, and I was so fascinated, horrified, <laughs> but also just very <laughs> thankful. And I remember a group of us went to Tower Records. Yeah. Um, and we walked to the bookstore and there was this book called The Guide to Getting It On. Mm. And one of my friends bought it for me and she's like, this is really going to help with your sex education. <laughs> and so I started reading it and I know like it's probably in its 20th anniversary now and stuff, but it was everything I wish sex ed was. Oh. And as a survivor, I was like, oh, wow, it talks about penises and what to do. It talks about hand jobs. It talks about this. It talked about trauma. It talked about so many things that I didn't know. And then one of the books that we ended up getting that day was called The Ethical Slut. Mm -hmm. And we were all hanging out, my group of friends, and they had the survey of have done have not done, will do, might do fantasy. <laughs> and so we started going through it as a group. And one of my friends was interested in, a, in polyamory. And he's like, he's like, yeah, so you can be with somebody and then be with somebody else. And you all agree that you're together. And this book helps you decide like whether you want to be or whether you're polyamorous, whether you're this. This is my first time ever hearing any of these words. Wow. And so that was an education in itself, but then that also made me realize that, oh, okay, I think that I can like a lot of people, but I don't know if I want to have a sexual relationship with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so those conversations in that time really helped. And then I realized in the moment that my first consensual sex encounter, I wanted it to not be in a relationship. Hmm. And I ended up having a one night stand mm -hmm. with a guy. And I remember when I brought him home, one of my gay husbands was so excited <laughs> that he pushed condoms under the door. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy was like, did your roommate just push condoms under the door? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and it was a really good experience. And, you know, when he went on his way and took a cab home, my two gay husbands were like, oh my God, let's celebrate. Let's have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yay, you finally had sex. <laughs> Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free. And one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post, and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex, I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. 
Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. So that first experience sounds like it was pretty good. And it was a one night stand by choice, by design, it sounds like. At what point did you decide you wanted to have a relationship with somebody? At the time, I think also, you know, I was going through counseling. And what I really wanted first was to feel comfortable with myself. Yeah. And what I wanted sexually Like if I couldn't talk about what I wanted somebody to do with me, then I wasn't going to put myself out there. So I, Mm -hmm. when I had that one night stand, I was comfortable with articulating, this is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm not willing to do. Good. So the second person I had sex with was someone that I had known for a while. And, you know, we carried on a casual on and off thing for a number of years. And it allowed me to be able to, feel comfortable asking, can I touch you here? Would you be okay if I did this? I would like you to do this to me. And had a couple of other, I think for a while I was like, you know what? I don't want to be in a relationship. I just want to catch up with everybody else. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time, I was also writing essays about my experience I wasn't really finding any stories about survivors. Like I was finding about like survivors telling about the abuse and maybe going to counseling, but I wasn't reading anything that talked about being sexually active Mm -hmm. in the journey to liking sex. Like I wanted to be able to see sex as a beautiful, amazing thing and not something that was violence committed against me. Mm -hmm. So through having these casual encounters, I was confident about hooking up with somebody. Like I went to a Halloween party and I hooked up with somebody and stuff. <laughs> but I was also beginning to figure out what I liked. And I, you know, was working with a therapist and everything. And there was some, and I said there was definitely like, I very liked, you know, was leaning towards rough sex. Mm -hmm. But also I began to read a lot about sex. 
and really started to educate myself about what is the different things out there. Is kink something that I wanted to do? And I remember coming across an article by Melina Williams-Hoss and reading about race play. Mm. And it was one of those things that you'd mentioned before, like sometimes you kink, there's something about kink that's early on. Mm -hmm. And it was something that like the power dynamic was a little bit fascinating to me. And I had read about her, I follow her on Facebook and I read about how she talked about what it was like to be a black woman in the BDSM community and what that meant and how, you know, I think now the BDSM community is a little bit more diverse, but like at the time that I read this interview with her. And so I like started talking about it with somebody that I had been like hooking up with and everything. And, you know, we had the conversation about what could be said um, and what could not be said. And that's when I had the first experience of something that should probably be a fantasy. Although, mm. you know, it was like, it was consensual. Um, I had agreed on what words he could call me and everything. But it was one of those things when the act of it was very intense. And it was probably one of the most intense orgasms I've ever had. Mm. But it was the shame afterwards that I couldn't handle. Yeah. You know, we both talked about the afterwards and everything like that. And that was probably, that was the last time we ever like hooked up. Mm. But it was also one of the things where I began to start putting into fantasy. Yes, I want to do this. I'm open to doing this. Mm-hmm. And I went through a period of only wanting to hook up, but then began to see that I was, using hooking up as a way to win back power mm-hmm. and it wasn't it wasn't about the person I was hooking up with anymore it was about I'm going into this knowing I'm going to fuck you but I'm going to play this game of seduction and I'm going to mm-hmm. play this game that I'm acting like oh it is making that their idea mm-hmm. instead of really engaging in the sexual act yeah and so my therapist and I had spoken, I was telling her about this and I said something to her that I was surprised when I said it, but I told her that I still feel so incapable of having a relationship with someone. And I'm afraid if I keep on hooking up like sex and love are so at the opposite ends and the thought of having sex with someone I love just it was something I couldn't fathom. Mm-hmm. I want to hear the rest of this story, but I also, before we get too far away from it, want to go back and ask, there are going to be some people listening to this who have never heard the term race play before. Okay. And so I'd like to ask you if you could talk about that briefly. Sure. So race play is kind of taking, I hope I am explaining this right. It's okay. But it's usually like kind of taking that dom sub and adding like racial connotations to it. So whether it's like you're role playing in a master slave or you're letting, um, in my situation, I allowed a white guy to call me the N word while he fucked me Mm -hmm. and negotiated that that was, here are the things that you can say. 
Um, and so I feel it's like taking those not so great terms and turning it into a sexual encounter, mm-hmm. a negotiated and complied. Everyone is on board of what's going to happen. I think there are probably a lot of people who would hear this and be like, why in the world would you do that? But there can be an aspect, and this may or may not be true for you, but for some people, there can be an aspect of taking back power through doing this because it is negotiated, because you're saying, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do, this is what the limits are, that turn it into a situation where you have power. Yeah, and that's one of the things about Melina Williams-Haas and reading a lot about what she's talked about race play and everything Mm -hmm. like that was very intriguing to me because in the moment, you know, when I've engaged in it, it has been this very liberating thing in some ways because it is like, yes, I'm a black woman. This is a white guy and we are engaging in this sexual act, but we have talked about how this is going to go down. We've gone over everything, the comfort level of, because I think some of one of the other thing was, is, you know, when I was talking about it with this person was he was kind of reluctant at first. This I don't want to call you that. Yeah. I don't want to say that to you. And it took a lot of conversation. I sent them the article and everything for us to really like get to that place of wanting to mm-hmm. do that. But then I've having actually done it, I realized that, you know, okay, this is this is one and done thing. Yeah. And, and I'm not gonna do this again. Yeah. Because it it you know, I think it even just if you take the race play out of it, you know, as a black woman who's primarily dated white guys, sometimes that is just a radical act of a white man openly loving a black woman. And just some of the things you still get society wise. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to one of my ex boyfriends and having the conversation of what it means to be in a relationship with me and how some people might not see what he sees. And it was the first time that he began to see that some of his friends and his mom made certain comments that he was not expecting. And Knowing that, okay, the weight of what it means to be with me when you're more than friends and you're not just casually sleeping together, but this person's your girlfriend. Mm -hmm. He, in the end, like our relationship ended and part of it was because I don't think he could handle what it takes. This is what it takes to be in an interracial relationship. Yeah. So that's also like the heaviness of that too was I feel like why I was like, okay, this something, an act I couldn't do again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I cut you off when you were about to talk about the conversation with your therapist. Yeah. So hooking up and just, it got to the point where the sex was empty and I experienced the first time of after having an orgasm and laying there next to somebody and then just feeling more alone. Mm. And I, talked to my therapist about it and so started to talk about like, well, what does it mean to be wanting to be in a relationship and wanting to experience to be physical with somebody and not cut myself off and shut myself down Mm -hmm. to commit the act of sex, to get vulnerable and, and figure out that vulnerability was not a weakness. 
And so I was celibate for three years. Oh, wow. Three long years. There's a lot of like sex toys and everything. Yeah. And, and, and then, but also getting to the point where I'm not sure if every survivor goes through this, but it's like getting to the point, you know, in your head, it's not your fault, mm-hmm. but getting to the point where I knew in my heart, it yeah. wasn't my fault. I knew in my head I was worthy of being loved, but I didn't know in my heart I was worthy of being loved. Mm-hmm. And I think those three years of getting to the point of not accepting any affection, any type of attention from a man and being more discerning of who I wanted to have sex with. Mm -hmm. And so we came up with a rule that I needed to care about the person that I was having sex with. Mm -hmm. And if I did not care about that person, I was not going to have sex with them. And it took, a, like I said, three years, and I ended up having a sexual experience with someone I had known for a while, and it felt good to have that person look at me, and it's not lust-filled, but it was like with care, mm-hmm. and feeling okay of letting someone look at me like that. Mm-hmm. I think that that was the hardest thing for me as a survivor to experience where I was like sexual empowerment. I'm going to learn about sex. I'm going to do all this sex. I'm going to have all the sex, but I wasn't letting the person look at me and look at me as like, wow, you're a very beautiful woman. Like when, when a man would say that to me, I would just block it out and be like, okay, are we going to fuck or we're not, are we mm-hmm. going to do this? Or are we not? Do you want me to blow you or not? Yeah. You know, it's like, and really taking in that they're not saying it to appease me like it yes I am beautiful and it's okay for somebody to say that to me yeah and yes to say that I care about you and I want to make you feel good that's not something to feel hurt or slighted by this this it's okay for someone to say those things to you yeah so it took a while for me to get to that point but then once I did I started connecting like the last person I had sex with before my current boyfriend, I allowed this person to take care of me. I was working and I had was up 24 hours and I asked him if I could come over. And when I came over, he had a cup of tea waiting for me. Mm. He like took off my clothes and said, get in the bed and, and relax. And had I not gone through that journey of really letting myself be intimate with somebody who cared about me, I would have never allowed this person to take care of me like that. I can take care of myself. Yeah. But to let him take care of me. And then we ended up having, we ended up having sex and it was amazing. And just the fact that like I was vulnerable and I allowed him to see me be vulnerable and see me know that I wasn't okay that day. I was very tired. I was very stressed. And he was just like, just let me take care of everything. And that surrender was like amazing. And it was just like, oh, okay, this is what it, this is what it feels like. Yeah. It's not just the act of sex and having orgasms. It's also letting this person see you be vulnerable and letting them take care of you. So it was a tough journey, but you know, with the person that I'm with now, 
the fact that like he knows all this stuff about me. I remember one night he said the perfect, not the perfect, but I still have like occasional anxiety nightmares and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, I'll protect you. Don't worry about it. And I was like, can you say that again? (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and to, you know, to understand that, you know, it takes a lot for me to let go and it takes a lot for me to let you help me. But the fact that he is willing to continually show up and show me that he's, he's here and he's not going anywhere has been amazing. And you're also allowing him to show up. Yes. You're allowing him to do those things for you. And that's yeah. huge. And I will say one more thing about my current relationship. Yeah. It's not as sexual as my sex was always the center for me in hooking up with someone or whatever. And I've told him that you've given me something that no man has ever given me is that you've given me intimacy. Mm. And that is something where I'm willing to take the intimacy over the sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're still getting to know each other's bodies and we're still getting to know what we both like and he's divorced and I'm the first woman that he's been with who's been able to have multiple orgasms. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It's a fun new toy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He asked me, he's like, how many orgasms have you had in one? I'm like, well, a couple of partners ago, I, a person gave me like 10 orgasms in one night. Um, and then I kind of had to stop him because I wouldn't be able to be functional the next day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's like, okay, he's like, I intend to break that record. And I'm yeah. like, okay, cool. <laughs> On a night when I don't have to work the next day. I know. Day. I was just like, yeah, that's the other thing about getting older. It's like, okay, we got to kind of have to plan this. Yeah. Because, you know. So you said that it's not a highly sexual relationship, which I assume means in terms of frequency. Is it satisfying when you do have sex? Yes. I do okay. enjoy the fact that he is, I will say, it's the full-blown Boston accent. <laughs> Um, so it is it is satisfying because he, he'll ask me is, is did you come are you gonna come? i'm like yeah i did he's like are you sure and i'm like yeah you're doing a good job he's like okay i just want to make sure that you're you're good and everything and just like getting comfortable to talk about like what you like and you know i remember we had a conversation about what kind of porn we like mm-hmm. and i told him he was also kind of like another stereotype he was like, you went to art school and you, you never had a, I'm like, yes, I'm one of the few girls who went to art school that did not sleep with another girl. <laughs> I'm like, I am so straight that I feel bad that I didn't have that kind of experience. I'm like, I'm like, I wish I was one of those girls that kind of like, you know, yeah. experimented, but I'm like, I've always known that I, I have admiration for women and I you know I have admiration for women's bodies I have the straight girl crush all the time mm. but yeah I've had no like desire to be with anybody but a man yeah one of the other conversations we had about in terms of because well, he's like I see you like long term and I said you know I would be open to maybe like you know if we establish our emotional bond and our physical boundaries as a couple like on our fifth anniversary 
you can reapproach the conversation <laughs> of maybe we we can like bring in a third. Uh-huh. But I told him I'm if that were to happen, I'm like we are hiring a sex worker mm-hmm. and we will pay them. Love it to do a job. Good job. <laughs> love it. Yes. <laughs> I love I'm how like, clear you are. Gonna, like I'm like I'm not going to like look out on Tinder or anything like that mm-hmm. or somebody that we know. We will hire a sex worker and go over everything that we would like to do as a couple and yeah. and do it that way. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Tori, before we close up, I want to ask you one final question. Sure. What belief did you have about sex as a child or teenager that you wish you could go back and correct her on now? Probably that your first time is supposed to be this over the top, mm. romantic, rose petals on the bed <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. And that's never the case. You know, even if your first time was consensual, it is awkward. And mm. It is weird. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes not everyone knows what they're doing. Because for a long time, that kind of killed my spirit knowing that, okay, the first time sexual encounter I've ever had was with, was yeah. in an abusive situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to have a real first time. Yeah. And so I think that that's one of the things I wish I could go back and be like, look, it's awkward for everybody. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Tori, thank you so much. This has been incredible. I'm so, so glad that you showed up and wanted to have this conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for like having me. This has been awesome. And like I said, I love the podcast and I love just hearing the different experiences, whether it's beyond what I've ever encountered or something that like I can relate to, like just the fact that you have a platform for women to tell their stories and to be real about their stories. Thank you. Uh, So I know that you do some art and do some writing around some of these topics. Do you want to let people know where to find you? Sure. Um, So I have a website, it's um, Tori Weston, writer, artist. And then I'm on Instagram at Tori Weston, T-R-I-W-E-S-T-O-N, writer, artist. All right. We'll put those links in the show notes. Oh, thank you so much. That's it for today. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As a sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. If you have questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Full show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. And you can follow me at goodgirlstalk on the socials for more sex positive content. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com 
forward slash good girls. While listening to this show is free, producing it is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I'll gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. <laughs>